1: Hello fellow time travellers, great to have you with me again as we travel around the world through time and space, it's a lonely business, I would prefer to have as many of you with me as possible, Uh, so hopefully there's quite a gang by now. Uh, Before I get started, uh, thanks again to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site, it's the financial support drawn from the Patreon.com presence that makes uh, everything else possible. If you're not a member of Patreon and you want to become a member, go to Patreon.com, look for me by name, Neil Oliver. Uh, part with some cash, uh, do it monthly or do it annually. It is a bit cheaper if you go for the if you go for a year all at once. Um, you get uh, two exclusive vodcasts every week, quizzes, prizes, chats. Paul and I uh, come up with various uh, you know developments and and extensions that we can add to the site all the time. Uh, maybe maybe best of all, though, you become part of a community, a family. I would prefer to think of it. Free thinking time travelers, people with questions they want answered. Um, and it's an opportunity to to get in amongst like minds and share ideas. Okay, it's time to strap ourselves, yourselves into the time machine as we set off on another episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. When they sense the exhaustion, they can smell it like blood in the water and they capitalise on it. The king is toppled and the republic rises. People power propels the empire forward, ever more muscular as it expands in all directions. After centuries of growth, Rome rules great swathes of Asia, Africa and the European continent. Onto the stage steps a military commander of genius who has already grown rich and powerful in the province of Gaul. Crossing the Rubicon, he takes on the Republican elite. He claims Cleopatra as a lover and sweeps to victory, bringing totalitarianism to Rome. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode in 210 BC we walked with a mighty army of incredible terracotta soldiers as the first emperor of China was laid to rest.
0: Where are we this week?
1: Afternoon Paul, we're, we're stepping forward in time, uh, over the best part of a couple of centuries as one of the world's greatest empires reaches a decisive moment in its history. The Roman Republic has been powerful and prosperous for hundreds of years, but now it comes face to face with one of its own. We're on the banks of the River Rubicon as Caesar rolls the dice. The moment in question, the moment in the story of the world, is Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and obviously crossing the Rubicon is one of those expressions that so many people use, but probably not everyone by any stretch will know where it comes from. But we're, we're going to get to that and we'll, we'll, we'll see the, the historical origin of crossing the Rubicon. But before that, before we consider Julius Caesar and, and what his impact was on Rome, it's important to tee this one up by thinking about totalitarianism. How this keeps happening to societies and to civilizations. Uh, you know, whatever egalitarian backgrounds or periods or phases a population or a civilization goes through, if they go through that, there's almost an, an irresistible pull t- towards totalitarianism. It's like a dark black hole center of gravity that's always there. Whatever people try to do in terms of equality and democracy and caring, sharing, entropy gets into the system or, or is in the system and it, oh, everyone gets too exhausted in it. And someone takes that society by the scruff of the neck as a dictator of some sort and the whole thing, all the power centralises. People have studied it. Political philosophers and the like have, have studied how this happens over and over again. The principle of uh, anacyclosis, you know, the, the idea you go from something benevolent to something corrupt and totalitarian, and then you you, you get back to something nice again. Well, one of those who contemplated how this—you know—I I, I refer all the time to Eric Hoffer, the True Believer, and th- this is a, a book about how mass movements get going, and so so he, he, he deals with how totalitarians and, and authoritarians periodically get a grip of society and make people do what they want. And another writer of note was Hannah Arendt. She was a a Holocaust survivor. She went into and came out the other side of the camps uh, in the 20th century under under the Third Reich. And then after that she became a political philosopher and she was a a a witness to, not not in the legal sense, she she was there to watch the trial of Adolf Eichmann and Eichmann was one of the high-ups in the the Third Reich. He was a, you might say he was an administrator. He was an organiser of the genocide of the Jewish people. He was the one that looked after the logistics and made it possible, made it happen. You know, when you think about the scale of that operation, moving hundreds of thousands and then millions of people around with the express intention of killing them. So Adolf Eichmann was, was captured after the war and went on trial and Hannah Arendt watched the trial and she wrote about, she famously wrote about the banality of evil. Actually, it got to the point in the aftermath of what she wrote that she was being accused of almost being an apologist for Eichmann uh, because she described the way in which anyone, in a sense, could could become part of something like a genocide just by becoming an administrator, a, a coordinator... Uh, and and ceasing to see the the human element of, of what was involved. There was a lot of controversy around it, but anyway, the banality of evil, everyone's heard about it. But Hannah Arendt wrote about how, within the context of all of that, she wrote about how totalitarianism, it begins with mass contempt for society as it is. People get tired of the status quo. And an idea appears almost overnight, almost like almost like a mushroom this idea appears that we've got to have change things must change no no matter what it doesn't really matter what as long as as long as we get change as long as we get something else anything's better than than what we have right now and so in that atmosphere would be totalitarian rulers they sense the zeitgeist and they organize the sentiment this desire for change and they articulate it you know, they give speeches and they, they, they put into words a possible utopian future. And and the people, or enough of the people, come to love it. And before you know where you are, you've got a mass movement moving towards something like communism or, or the Third Reich. This is, how, this is how these things are done. And at the moment, right now, uh, the trust in leaders is failing all over. You know there are there are leaders who are under attack, metaphorically speaking, for for what they've been up to in recent times. You know you think about Justin Trudeau in Canada and Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and, and Emmanuel Macron uh, in France and and others besides. People are fed up. Not everyone, but in a lot of societies. Right now, this week, uh, Giorgio Maloney in, in Italy has sensed a, a desire for some kind of change. So there's a period of flux and a, and a desire for change is out there. And trusting a lot of leaders who've been around for a while is, is guttering. You know, like a candle flame that's you know starting to drown in its own wax. You can you can see these these lights just about to go out. And so there's calls for change all over the place. So. It's interesting in the context of looking at the past, it's it's interesting to note that the same, some of the same elements, ingredients for change are here now. They're here now in the West. Society's getting exhausted with itself and confidence in the way things have been, the way things used to be, it's on the wane and it's, it's, a, it's an, an interesting and a dangerous time. Let's now get into the into the historical context of Julius Caesar. We've spoken previously about when Rome got rid of its last king. Uh, there had been a, a monarchy in, in Rome, but they got sick of them because they were corrupt and more and more corrupt. And eventually they drove the last uh, king of Rome away with all his family. And Rome became a republic, res publica, you know, the business of the people. And the, the, the onus on, on running society came to the individual and the collective people, democracy in in whatever form, people managing their own affairs. And what evolved in Rome, in the aftermath of the Kings, uh, the Republic took the form of rule by the Senate, and the Senate was like a parliament, like a a, a coming together of of figures who would make decisions. And above the Senate, uh, there were two consuls who were elected annually and these were men who were experienced military men older men you know who'd seen life who'd run provinces who had governed and commanded armies and, and whatever they, there would be two consuls for a year underneath them there was the senate and then and beneath the senate there was a, a complicated and really quite an intricate system of government evolved with to some extent checks and balances mechanisms in place to try and stop any one individual or any group of individuals taking power and holding power for too long. Everything had a a best before date on it, you know, a a use by date after which those individuals would be replaced and under that republic the shadow of Rome started to spread over more and more of, of Europe and the old world The system worked because at heart Rome wasn't too fussy about trying to micromanage every moment of of every, of every street and every field and every house that was falling under its shadow. Broadly speaking if the provinces and the people thereof paid their taxes sent gold back to Rome when requested, when required and if they sent men to serve time in the legions they were pretty much left to get on with things as they wanted so Rome wasn't trying to impose stark uniformity there was was leeway as long as people did certain things pay your taxes send men you know offer up slaves that kind of thing and you'd be left to get on with it there was a neighboring empire uh, run from carthage in what is now tunisia in north africa Uh, this was an empire that had been sort of seeded and had been left behind by the phoenicians and we've, we've looked at the Phoenicians before they built the first temple for Solomon in Jerusalem uh, they were great traders, great travellers great architects and builders and by the sort of, uh, by the middle of the 3rd century before the birth of Christ Rome and Carthage, Rome and the, that Phoenician empire were kind of uh, bumping up against one another unhappily vying for overall control of the Mediterranean world and Eventually, war broke out, and war happened, and and dragged on intermittently with pauses in between for a hundred years. The Roman rendering of Phoenician was Punic, so this period of conflict became known as the has gone down in history as the Punic Wars, and the Punic reference to the Punic Wars is a, is a sort of a byword for anything that lasts interminably. You know, such and such lasted longer than the Punic Wars. A person might joke, and so. It ground on and on and on and then by I think the official date is 146 years before the birth of Christ there was a final defeat and invasion of Carthage by Rome Uh, and the Romans went the lengths of ploughing salt into the soil of the fields so that the place was sterile barren for a generation Carthage would never be Carthage again and and so from that point on Rome had added Africa or, or a chunk of Africa to its empire Also by that time, um, the Greek city-states, as had been, were also under Rome. France, although France was Gaul, uh, Spain, much of Spain was under Roman rule. Parts of Asia, by the first century BC, uh, the shadow of Rome stretched all the way to the Black Sea. This was all happening under the Republic. It lasted a long time, and yes, the the Republic lasted for centuries. It, it ground it, once it got up and running, it worked. Is the truth of it the, the undeniable fact of it? Obviously, you know the glory that was Rome. It worked, and it threw up these iconic figures like Marius and Sulla and Pompey, great leaders of of men. Some of the first name gang, you know, some of the people that just go down in history with only one name, you know, like like Beyoncé. So you've got these figures, and then then comes you know then comes the, the daddy, uh, Julius Caesar, he's a nephew of Marius's wife. When he comes in, when the spotlight turns on him, that's all anybody knows about him, you would say. And he becomes, he gets a shot at being consul. In 59 years BC, Julius Caesar gets, gets to be one of the consuls, one of the two people in charge of the Senate. That period of consulship, I think that's a word, is followed by seven years uh, in command of the army of Gaul, what we know as, as France. He is a, a military tactician of genius. I think it's fair to say that some people say that if Caesar isn't the greatest military mind of all time, he's definitely in the top one. <laughs> he, you know, he was of, 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 unequaled, of unequaled ability. And he, he was expected back in, in Rome and didn't come. For a long time he stayed put, he stayed in Gaul in command of his army he was enjoying the fame and he was enjoying the wealth and the power uh, but then eventually eventually the gravity of rome he, he had he had to go back now there was a way in which he he would have been expected to come back to rome custom dictated a certain behaviour and as he left gaul and came into northeastern italy there's a river and it was known then as the rubicon And the etiquette was that a a commander like Julius Caesar on arrival on the far bank of the Rubicon would surrender the command of his army, kind of retire his command uh, and and would then complete his approach to Rome under those circumstances. Almost like he'd hung up his guns, you know, almost like he checked his firearms at the the door with the bouncers. Uh, But he didn't do that he crossed the Rubicon at the head of his army. So that's what crossing the Rubicon means because once he splashed ashore on on the near side, if you like, there was no going back. He had crossed the Rubicon and he he had set in sequence events which would would just have to play out now. And the moment, the moment within the moment, in terms of the story of the world, is that he apparently said, barely overheard, possibly more for himself than for anybody else, the die is cast. You know, I've rolled the dice now. This is it. Interestingly enough, no one's quite sure now which river in the northeast of Italy was the one that the Romans were calling the Rubicon. At some point during his reign as dictator, Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, uh, decided that it was a river running through a town called savignano and so that's become savignano sul rubicon but the point was that by crossing the rubicon at the head of his army julius caesar had committed treason high treason ultimately he, you know he could have been uh, captured tried and executed for what he had done for what he was doing because he was approaching rome as a threat and Word spread. Rome knew he was coming at the head of his army. You know, shock and horror. But he said, you know, on the contrary, what he was doing was to save the Republic from ambitious and corrupt men. He said, in his own defence, that he had justification. He was coming to preserve and to save the Republic. Pompey, the aforementioned Pompey, was sent to deal with him. Pompey was another great general, a great commander with successes behind him. Caesar out-fought him and out-thought him every step of the way, eventually chased him all the way to Egypt, uh, and Pompey was murdered in Egypt. And that was it. At this point, Julius Caesar is, well, he's he's hard to challenge. He has asserted his dominance. It was at that time, famously, that he got together with Cleopatra, the pharaoh, the queen of Egypt. Uh, He got together with her, uh, although some people speculate that actually the prime mover in that In that assignation was cleopatra herself but there we are Uh, it's it's now 45 years before the birth of christ it's just four years since he crossed the rubicon and he's voted dictator for life julius caesar is is awarded a you know a a hitherto sort of unthought of title i suppose dictator for life he's king of rome in all but name after all the centuries of republic uh, in every way that matters rome's got a king again And it's Julius Caesar. So this is how totalitarianism comes when too many people decide, accept, I don't know, possibly do no more than drop their shoulders as though tired of what they have, it no longer means anything to them, whatever inherent value their society's structure and meaning had, it's gone. People just let it go. Because they want something new, and when someone charismatic offers the something new in the way that Julius Caesar did, well, it turns out people sometimes go along with it. It's fair to say though that Caesar didn't kill the Republic of Rome. The Republic was dying. The, Re- the Republic was was bleeding from a thousand cuts anyway. Because of that, because people were were exhausted by it. Um, but ha- having said that, having said that, he was murdered. He was, Caesar was murdered on the floor of the Senate, famously, on the 15th of March, the Ides of March, uh, 44 BC. And then the people, Brutus and the rest of them that, that conspired and, and, and did the deed, they were, you know, those with blood in their hands were soon chased down and, and killed anyway. But the, the point, the bigger point really is that as Kenneth Clark, who I've referenced before, not the MP, but the, the art critic and historian, Kenneth Clark said that civilization Collapses in itself because of, ultimately because of exhaustion, and loss of confidence. A people, a population, loses confidence in its society, in its philosophy, its laws. Everything, everything is suddenly unsatisfactory, and anything new is what's desired. So when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he said the die is cast. That, is the, that was the moment in the in the story of the world, and and the die was cast. Everything was different now. After Caesar, you get his adopted great-nephew, Octavian, and he he finishes the job. He finishes the job of, of doing away with the Republic without actually saying that he was doing away with the Republic. That's what happened. The structures, SPQR, Senatus Populus Romanus, you know, the Senate and the people of Rome, that SPQR, that, that, that acronym that, that, that appears everywhere, all of that was still in place. And there was a myth perpetuated that, that Rome was still a republic, but it, it wasn't. It was an empire under an emperor. Uh, Octavian, he proved his mettle. He was challenged quickly by Cleopatra, who by then was in partnership with another Roman, Mark Antony and they took on Octavian, but they were both dead by by 30 years BC and that was all over. Uh, Octavian became consul uh, in 27 BC. Uh, He was awarded or he took the the, the honorific Augustus, which means venerable. So he becomes Caesar Augustus. He takes the, you know, he he keeps the the family name. Uh, Then he takes on Pontifex Maximus, which means the, the greatest priest, so that he even he even politicised the religion. That had been a religious title, Pontifex Maximus, but Octavian took it as part of his own personal collection of titles and honors. And that that was the next that was the next phase of the glory of Rome would unfold under Octavian. And it's again to come back to the present. It, it's important to to contemplate what tends to happen or what has happened before when enough people regard the present with contempt and contemplate change for the sake of change. You know, look back at Rome, look back at the Republic, when men of ambition, men like Caesar, men like Octavian, when they sense the exhaustion, they can smell it like blood in the water or smoke in the air from a distant fire and they capitalise on it and suddenly everything is different. But suffice it to say, when when Caesar crossed the Rubicon and rolled the dice, he was starting the next phase of the story of Rome. And in the years to come, Romans would learn to love it. The struggle between stability Chaos and new order is a constant story. The choice, submitting or resisting, between kneeling or standing. There are always men who would be king. Unreasonable men who would remake the world in their own image. There are always people who will not submit even when all is lost. Whatever happens, we may refuse our consent. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd that they should join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy post-production is by Allthorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.